have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 3. And while you're turning to Matthew 3, if you will go back toward the Old Testament a few pages, and I'm not sure how many in your Bible, but it will not be many, if you'll go to Malachi chapter 3, and if you will just kind of hold those uh, together for just a moment. Uh, I want us to uh, read Matthew 3 together, and kind of as a... um, Just as a statement about our purpose, uh, this is our third week in our series on Matthew that we have devoted 20 weeks to, and I'll just repeat what I said when we began. Uh, For those of us who, if you're familiar with Matthew, there's 28 chapters, so we don't have a week per chapter, but we're working along now as if we had a week per chapter. Uh, That will change, uh, but we will be in chapter 3 Uh, today and then we'll be back in chapter 3 and chapter 4 next week Um, but I want you to understand our purpose in looking at Matthew we uh, you have heard it repeated several times already and we will when we sing our last song today Uh, we are looking at Matthew through the lens of this king who has been promised and this kingdom that is being established that's the lens by which we're looking through we certainly recognize the benefit of doing a verse-by-verse exposition of Matthew. I, for one, would say I would love to do that. But for our time during this season in our life as a church, uh, we are focusing on the king and we're focusing on the kingdom. And I would just encourage you, um, just go back and take your worship guide today. Look through the lyrics of the songs that we sing. Look at our text and you will see king and you'll see kingdom and you'll see the implications of that all through the course of what we're talking about. And we will be doing some of the same thing for the next uh, 20 weeks. But I just mentioned that. Matthew chapter 3. Um, let's read together. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up the children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. We've been in Matthew two weeks. Uh, We won't repeat this every week, but I felt it would be good for us to rehearse these things again. Already we have looked at Jesus and who he is. If you're making a list of these things, you may want to just look at this and compare it back to uh, our first week together. Jesus is the Son of God. That's who we hear Matthew say. Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, He is the Son of David, making him the legal heir to the throne of David. He's the son of Abraham and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the one who came to save his people from their sins. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. And last week, we considered Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises regarding his legitimacy to the throne. He was born of a virgin, making him the God-man. In other words, he wasn't the son of Adam. So his biological existence, we know, was supernatural. And his birthplace was the fulfillment of God's promise. His evacuation and return from Egypt symbolized and pointed to a new exodus. In fact, a spiritual deliverance of the true Israel. And I want you to hold on to that. The true Israel. We even recognize that the suffering and grief associated with the infanticide that came as a result of Herod's attempt to destroy him and to keep him from the throne, we see from Matthew's gospel was related back to the suffering of Israel in their deportation in 722 B.C. uh, when the Assyrians came and took away a group of them and then again in 586 B.C. uh, when the Babylonians came. But as you recall, and I hope you caught this because this, our text today bears upon it as well. As you recall, the suffering gave way to the sure hope of their return and restoration. We looked at it in Jeremiah chapter 31. It was grounded, their restoration was grounded in a new covenant, a covenant that was secured by Jesus the fulfillment of the promised restoration. And then finally we saw that the place of his upbringing there in Nazareth, that that environment pointed to the fact that he would largely live in obscurity and certainly would be rejected and looked down upon and ridiculed. And then we know as we have sung about already today and as we uh, will look in Scripture and repeatedly see in Scripture, finally was persecuted uh, and executed. As I said, we won't review this every week, but we can't overstate the significance of what we've already seen and heard about Jesus, the promised king. Now, what I want us to do now is I want us to broaden that context, okay? I want us to broaden the context, and you have your place there in Malachi chapter 3, and I want us to pick up and begin reading there in chapter 3 at verse 16, which is where we started this morning in our call to worship. And I want us to read through chapter 4. There's only six verses there, but I want us to read it. And listen closely, because 
what we're dealing with in Matthew chapter 3 points directly back to Malachi chapter 3 and 4. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Uh, you may want to underline that decree, and I won't point you to that now, but go back and see what that means in the context of our catechism for today as we look at the decrees of the Lord. The point is, the decree of the Lord is that which He wills and He makes happen. Hold on to that. Read this text in Malachi, and the reason for this is that we mentioned that by the time of Jesus' birth, by the time of Jesus' birth, Israel had experienced 400 years without a prophetic word. We said that last week, remember. 400 years without a prophetic word. In other words, all along through Israel's history, God had called out messengers to speak to the leadership and to the people on His behalf. These prophets would often remind Israel of their heritage. He would point, point out their sin, send warnings of God's judgment, and speak of God's grace toward them and His desires to bless them. The most significant message along the way was a message of the coming King, the coming Messiah. And it had been 400 years, and God had sent no one to speak for Him. And then we have what we read in Matthew chapter 3. I want us to look back at Malachi for just a minute. I want to point out two things that are important, and then we will give attention to our text. First, 
In Malachi, we see that God promised that he would send his messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. We didn't read it, but if you have your place there in Malachi, look back in chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. He will prepare the way before me. We see who that messenger is, at least, when we get to chapter, we get verse 5. In chapter 4, behold, I send you Elijah. So he's sending a messenger, and he has named him as Elijah. Scripture bears testimony of the Old Testament uh, prophet Elijah. Some of us have read about him, and probably all of us have. He prophesied in the early 9th century B.C. He prophesied during the reign of kings Ahab, uh, Ahaziah, and Jehoram. And if you'll go back and sometime, if you want to read the story of Elijah and you haven't read it recently, go back to 1 Kings chapter 17 and begin reading and read through 2 Kings chapter 2 where we hear about how he leaves the earth. You may want to turn there now, but 2 Kings 2, 9 through 11, when they had crossed, speaking of Elijah and Elisha, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, uh, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, uh, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. An incredible departure. Now why do we mention this? Why do I even point back to this Elijah? Because there was an expectation based upon Elijah's leaving and based upon the last prophetic word before John the Baptist comes that Elijah would come again. And people look to that. And it's clear that some even thought that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this promise. And, and in a sense, he was. He was. God breaks silence. He breaks 400 years of silence and sins an Elijah-like prophet. Now, there are a lot of similarities between John the Baptist and Elijah, and that's not our purpose today. I pointed to that because it is important that God in His grace ends His silence. And after 400 years of silence, He sends one to begin speaking again. Now, there's a second thing that I want us to note from Malachi, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And we see it in verse 18. So while you have your place there, look back. And look at verse 18. Then once more, okay, then this is important. Then once more you shall see, meaning that there will be a time when you don't see this. But then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. In other words, there's going to be a season where that is not going to be easily discerned. Now I want you to think about that in terms of 400 years of silence. God doesn't speak to them for 400 years. 
And in 400 years, a lot of changes took place. They were already on a downward trend. And God's last word through the prophet Malachi was, is there is coming a day and you will see again the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And what is clear is by the time we get to the unfolding of this great promise, by the time we get to the birth of Jesus, everything is blurred and no one knows who the righteous is and who aren't. They don't know. It's not clear. The Pharisees seem to be righteous. The Sadducees seem to be righteous. But there is not a sense of absolute clarity because their worship of God was no longer genuine worship. And there were a lot of good things that were being sought after and a lot of good things that were being done. And there were lists and lists of rules and laws that had been added to and that were now accompanying God's Word. They weren't even able to clearly discern the truth of God's Word. And we'll find that out in a couple of weeks by the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus begins to teach and point back to the intent of God's Word and no one knew the intent of God's heart. They didn't know the intent of God's heart. But Malachi prophesies, God speaks through Malachi and says, but there is coming this day, and he doesn't say when, but it's actually 400 years later that now you'll be able to begin to see the difference, the distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, between those who serve God and those who don't. Now, how does that come about? It comes about when God breaks his silence and he sends John. Luke's gospel tells us that John is is a divinely promised child. We hear about his extraordinary birth. Not in the same way of Christ, but we do hear this, is that his mother and father were advanced in years when he came. That's how Luke puts it. As if to say it was impossible for them to have children seemingly and yet God promised John's birth and he comes. And we also hear from Luke's gospel that he was, now listen to this, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We even pray now for ourselves and for each other that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We pray that. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And then we read this. And listen, this comes from Luke. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit, in the spirit and power of who? Elijah. To turn the hearts, listen to the words of Malachi again, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You hear this? Already John's mission is to begin to preach so that there is a clear distinction between those who serve God and those who don't, those who are righteous, and those who are wicked. A very important part of God's redemptive plan was coming to an end. 
When John steps up, he is the last Old Testament prophet. In other words, he is the last prophet of the Old Covenant. But God wants to make sure that the people understand that this, that this part of his plan of redemption is ending and that he has orchestrated an end to it. He wants them to come face to face with why it was coming to an end and what it meant. The author of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews chapter 8 verses 6 through 7. He said, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediated is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant, if the the Old Testament, in other words, the Old Covenant, had it been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The author of Hebrews quoted the passage from Jeremiah chapter 31 that we looked at last week that begins, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Because the first covenant was insufficient to accomplish all that God intended to accomplish in his plan of redemption. And John comes and heralds an end to the old covenant. He wants to make sure that the people, God wants to make sure that the people understand that the old covenant is ending. John comes preparing a way for the king's arrival. When our president travels, we don't know a lot about it, but we do know this, that when our president travels, what happens? Well, some go and goes ahead of him. Secret service and all these people, they go and they make sure that the, that the ways are cleared. I, I remember being in Accra when uh, President George Bush uh, visited Ghana and visited Accra and... Uh, it's already tough to get around in the city of Accra. But when I was there and George Bush was there, you just couldn't go anywhere. They had all these roads blocked off and which put all the traffic on all the other roads that were already uh, just jam-packed with traffic. But I remember just how congested it was. The Secret Service had gone before him. They had prepared the way. They had prepared the way for the president's arrival. Well, when kings traveled during Jesus' day and before, uh, there were a group of people that went out ahead to make sure that the way was cleared. They made sure that the roads and stuff were cleared so that they could be traveled. And I'm sure they went into the towns and they said all kinds of things about what needed to be done in preparation for this. Well, this is how John's work is being referenced. He is being referenced as one who is preparing the way for a new king for the arrival of the king and he's doing this not by moving rocks and sticks and branches and stuff from the road he's doing this by preaching preaching a two-part message the preparation that needed to come was to prepare the people for God to prepare the hearts of people for God, to prepare them regarding their relationship with God. In other words, the preparation was a spiritual preparation. That was the nature of it. And it's clear because John's message has two simple parts. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Repent. There's a king coming. There's a kingdom coming. There is a new kingdom being established. Repent. He doesn't come saying your roads need to be cleaned up. He doesn't come saying fill the potholes with sand and rock or restore the thatch on your roofs or repair your sheepfolds or put up a banner or, or prepare your best meal and get ready for a celebration. John says in an uncompromising and unambiguous way, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We read this morning, twice already, that he even addressed a group of people. And he's talking to the larger context here. I don't believe he's just targeting the Pharisees and Sadducees because when we get to Luke's Gospel, we don't sense that. We don't sense that. He is saying, you brood of vipers. That's a sharp statement. You know what he's saying? He said, you're a den of snakes. You're a den of snakes. And they knew what he was referring to. They knew exactly what he was referring to. He was referencing them as children of the devil. Now, get that. Referencing them as children of the devil. We wouldn't appreciate that too much. Unless we were a Satan worshiper, we wouldn't appreciate that too much. But he came and he referenced them as children of the devil. He says, your lives are inconsistent with what God intended even in the first covenant. Your lives are inconsistent with the heart of the covenant that God has established with you. You're not children of God. You're children of the devil. And then he says this, repent. Turn to God. In other words, turn away from the devil. Turn away from sin and turn to God. He's calling them to see themselves as sinners before God and turn their hearts, their minds, their attitudes toward God to seek Him, to seek His will and His desires. That's what John preaches. It's important to see that the next two things, that as it relates to repentance, are number one, bearing fruit, keeping with repentance. That is, your lives should reflect that they are consistent with seeking to please God. I, I love this part in Luke's Gospel. I always have. It's just, it's just amazed me. John is standing up says, repent and turn to God. And God is speaking to the hearts of the people and they're saying, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? In Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, we hear, what does that mean for some? And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? In other words, they understood. I can say that I repent and turn to God, but, but what does that mean when you begin to talk about fruit in keeping with repentance? In other words, it's got to mean something in what I'm doing because I recognize that I'm a sinner, but they don't associate the things that they're doing with being inconsistent with the heart of God. And he answered them. Now listen to these simple things. It's not a list of things we can do and not a list of things we don't do. We sang that, but it has every bit to do with the righteousness of Christ and our heart in seeking Him. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Whoever has two tunics, share with him the one who has none. And whoever has food, do likewise. 
tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, What does that mean for us? And this is what he says. He says, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. What did it mean? It meant that at the heart of repentance was a seeking after God and resting in absolute contentment in Him. And to do good for others for the sake of God. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 just a minute. I know you're familiar with the text, but it immediately came to mind when I'm giving, giving consideration. Verse 27 of chapter 1 of Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the good news of Christ. The good news of this King. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Contentment, okay? No fear, contentment. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Contentment, resting in Him, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have and by my, and reminded and that Christ had also. Contentment, resting in Him. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. And then he says this, listen, we've already, contentment, resting in God, contentment, resting in God. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see it? Which is in Christ Jesus. Repentance. Fruit of repentance. And John is standing proclaiming to a group of people preparing for God to repent and turn to Him. And there's something else significant about this repentance. Notice that this repentance was marked by a clear identification with others who were also repentant. This identification was baptism. Now, we may not immediately recognize the significance of this. We just, John was baptizing. Yes, it was a message of repentance and an acknowledgement of sin. But for the Jew, it was also a confession that their heritage and their ethnicity was not sufficient to save them. What was it that John said? He said, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. 
Here's why that's so significant as it's related to baptism. Prior to John's baptism, the Jews recognized baptism as a mark for a Gentile that was coming into Judaism. In other words, those who were not Jewish ethnically, those who had no heritage back to Abraham, Gentiles who desired to to embrace Judaism, the males were circumcised and the men and women both were baptized. It was a symbol and a mark for them that I am identifying with this group of people. And then John is standing telling these people with this as their context for baptism, you are not children of God. Your father is the devil. You are a brood of vipers. And your heritage with Abraham means nothing as it relates to this new kingdom that is being established by this promised king repent and be baptized identify with those who are repentant and so John calls the Jews to repent and they're baptized they were in essence declaring my connection with Abraham is not sufficient to save me Now, none of us in here are Jews. I have a handful of Jewish friends, some of whom are believers and a few who are not. They take very seriously their heritage and their connection with Abraham. Some, even for their salvation, those who have come to know Christ recognize that it's not. But that is the message that John was preaching. And Jesus addressed the same issue. Look in John chapter 8. Jesus has this, beginning in verse 31, He has this conversation, very similar conversation. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you're truly My disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered Him, We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. In other words, they're tying, again, they're very connected with Abraham. How is it that you say uh, you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In other words, you are enslaved. You are enslaved. You've been enslaved. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free... You'll be free indeed. And then Jesus acknowledges, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. That's the issue. Jesus says, that's the issue. You are offspring of Abraham. But you're not like Abraham. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Antennas go up. My father Abraham. No. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, in other words, people of faith who trusted in God and rested in him, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. 
But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. And here's the reason for that. Because you hear the word of your father. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. John is saying, repent. And Jesus is saying, turn to do the desires of God. To accomplish the will of God. But John's doing something else. Notice in John's message in Matthew 3, he is pointing to a certain judgment. He is pointing to a certain judgment. I'm not saying a certain kind of judgment. I am saying a certain judgment. All of the promises of God are fulfilled. We saw that last week. And we looked at them in the context of a prophetic word about a promise of a Savior. But God's promise stands on the other side as well. For those who do not repent, the coming of the King and the establishment of His kingdom called for one of two things. And this is true today, so please hear this. Either repentance or judgment. Repentance or judgment. Notice that John said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now I want you to know this isn't a purging type of fire. There's a cleansing kind of fire, and then there is a fire for judgment and destruction. We know how to, what he's talking about. The root is being cut. The axe is already being struck at the root of the tree. It has already started its work to remove the trees that do not bear fruit unto repentance. In other words, those who have not repented face a certain judgment. Those of us who do not repent face a certain judgment. And then John says again, referring to what Christ will do, notice what he says, which just... It just undergirds everything that he's already said. His, meaning Christ, this king, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with, read that, unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. In other words, eternal fire. Eternal fire judgment, eternal suffering. And we'll hear more about this in Matthew's Gospel. But Jesus does exactly that and continues to warn toward that end. John points to a certain judgment for those who do not repent. In conclusion, I want us to consider a few things. First, 
We need to be careful that we don't pass off John's teaching and testimony as just simply historical. Oh yeah, I know about John the Baptist. Oh yeah, this is what he preached. Oh yeah, he came at the end of 400 years of silence. He came at the, year, at the end of a 400 year period of silence on the part of God in the course of redemptive history. God had promised John the Baptist coming 700 years before John the Baptist came. When Isaiah prophesied of this one who would become preparing a way in the wilderness, 700 years before him, God had promised him. 400 years before he came, he was promised again. In other words, God is putting a spotlight on the one that he will send that would come at the end of this period of silence. Now, God didn't say I was going to be silenced for 400 years. But can you imagine 400 years, four centuries pass, and there is no word from God? None. Silence. It is almost as if heaven shut everything down and said nothing to his people. And then John comes. His message was not just a message for the Jews during the early years of that first century. His message was for us. The second thing Repentance is as crucial today as it was when God's silence was broken. And John, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, this was God's word at the end of 400 years of silence. God doesn't step in and say, oh, how are you doing? I know you're glad I'm back. I just want you to know I haven't forgotten about you. I've been watching over and caring for you. And he had. That's not what he said. The first words that come from God are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus would go on to say, as we read earlier this morning, in our assurance of pardon, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The assurance of pardon was, but for those who do the will of God, for those who repent, for those who seek the will of God, for those whose purpose in life is to fulfill and fulfill the will of God, for those who look to the will of God and His decrees, for those who look to God and love Him, that is who will be with Him. Repentance is necessary for salvation. John clearly communicated this. Just remember, the significance of a Jewish heritage and being a recipient of the first covenant was not sufficient for salvation. And we would say, whoa, if that's not for, for, sufficient for salvation, then what is? We sang it this morning. Not me, not mine, not what I've done, not what I've not done, not this list, not that list, not what I've said, nothing, no, what is sufficient for salvation is the work of this king on our behalf, the one who would suffer, and our acknowledgement of our sin and our trusting in him. 
Only those who have a genuine heart for God, who look to God as beautiful and supreme and worthy of all affection and praise and obedience, are those whose repentance is genuine. Have you ever wondered if your repentance is genuine? You said, I repent. I asked Jesus into my life. That's equal to repentance. It should be. It should be. We often equate that. We just don't like to use the word repentance because we don't like to initiate and begin, to begin our conversation with saying, I'm a sinner. Some of you may have attended some kind of a, 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 a treatment uh, type therapy. Uh, but I'm reminded at least of the pictures of those that I have seen when, when AA meets or, or NA meets or whatever. Uh, they gather around and they say, you know, uh, I, one of the first things they say, they give their name and then they say what? Uh, I, I'm an alcoholic. But when we gather, the first thing we do is say what? I'm a sinner. And but for the grace of God, I would be under the wrath of God. But by God's grace, according to His work in the Lord Jesus Christ, me having, I having repented, turned to Him, I trust in Him, and now I am His. What are we saying? If we are saying what is intended in repentance, we are saying this, that I know that God is the most beautiful, supreme, and worthy being of all my affection and praise and obedience. Let's pause there for a minute. Ponder the weight of that statement. We should. We should ponder it. Now ask yourself, is your repentance genuine? And is there fruit of repentance evident in your life? You know you. I'm not talking about perfection. Martin Luther reminded us of that. He said that repentance is so crucial that the life of a believer is a life of continual repentance. What does that tell us? That we are constantly turning to Jesus. We haven't just turned and We've arrived and there we are. We constantly turn to Jesus. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be of repentance. In other words, we repent and turn to Him and embrace Him as our cherished and treasured Lord and Master. And we continue turning constantly to Him. It's a life of ongoing salvation. When we talk about sanctification, that's what we're saying. It is a life of ongoing repentance. So here's how we apply that. If you've never trusted Christ, repent and turn to Him. When? Oh, right now. Right now. Right now, where you are, repent and turn to Him. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge His worthiness to be cherished. Acknowledge that He is worthy to be served even in every aspect of our life. 
that he is to be loved and obeyed. Now, how does a believer apply that? One who's already trusting in Christ. We just continue trusting. We don't stop turning. Why? Because the longer we live, the more we recognize the sin in our life, and it is uncovered in our need for Him. Don't stop cherishing Him. Don't let sin settle in. Turn to Him. The third thing that I believe that we need to grab a hold of is that baptism remains the marking off of those who desire to be identified with the group of people who are following Christ and committed to a life of continued repentance. That's what baptism is. We'll talk in more detail about it next week. But I want you to hold on to that. That'll be the, that'll be the foundation for our conversation together next week. And that is, is that baptism remains that marking off. Just as it was with John, just as it was with Jesus, just as it was with the disciples, and just as we are commanded at the end of Matthew's Gospel to go and to baptize. It is a clear marking off for those who say, I, am want, I have repented, I am identifying with those who repented. I'm not identifying with the perfect. I'm identifying with those who are being perfected in Christ. And then last, hold on to this. Certain judgment still awaits everyone who rejects Christ. What does it mean to reject Christ? To refuse to repent. To refuse to turn to Him. To refuse to follow Him. Certain judgment awaits. There's no middle road. It's repent and cherish Him or face judgment for cherishing sin and all that opposes God. So either you cherish Christ or you cherish sin. You cherish Christ or cherish yourself. You cherish Christ or you cherish something else. There's no middle road. And for all of those who do not cherish Christ, here again, John points to this clearly, and this is for all. He said, the axe is already being struck at the root of the tree that does not bear fruit and repentance, and it will be burned. Christ has his winnowing. He's already taken his fork, and he has taken the sickle, and he has cut the wheat, and he is threshing it, and he is winnowing it, and the wheat will remain with him, and the chaff will be burned with everlasting, everlasting fire. Cherish Him. Will you pray with me? Father, we recognize the day that as you broke silence, you were very clear in what you intended in drawing a distinction between those who serve you and those who don't. You came and you spoke to John's audience, to the people who were coming to the Jordan, and you are speaking to us today to repent and to turn to you. We know, Father, that the King 
has come. The kingdom has been established. The consummation of his coronation and the consummation of the kingdom being drawn separate from all other kingdoms. The consummation of it resting, Lord, uh, in complete deliverance from all of this sin. And the final judgment has not yet come. But God, you hadn't failed at a thing that you said that you would do. And we recognize today, God, that you'll not fail in that. Father, would you sear into our hearts your grace toward us in Christ and the judgment that comes to those who do not repent and do not cherish you. Father, we pray for ourselves today. We need to hear this message. Our hearts need to hear it more than just our ears. So you would, would you awaken our hearts? Would you awaken the heart of the unbeliever here today, the one who is not professed? And would you awaken the heart of all of us who do profess? Father, we're reminded today that we have, we have a world that needs to hear the gospel. And that this message was not just for the Jew of John's day, but it is for every man of every age. And every century since then. So even now, Father, we lift up our international partners as they give their lives and their efforts to proclaiming the gospel. Father, would you grant fruit to be born in the life of Jay and Kathy, Bill and Kathy. Father, would you grant that fruit would be born in the life of Mustafa and in Ishmael and in Isaiah and Razak. We lift them before you today and ask God uh, that you would cause their word and their message to be heard as clear as the message that John preached there by the Jordan. And Father, would you call men and women to salvation? Father, would you pierce through the darkness of this age and help us, Lord, as we communicate this message to those uh, that we uh, are in contact with. Father, admittedly, we confess today that we, we are reluctant to point to and say this is sin and judgment is coming. And yet, Father, when you broke silence, that's exactly what you told us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.